Hello, my name is Kirsten Patton and I am the Working Group Manager at ATARC. ATARC is the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center and we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides a collaborative forum for government, academia, and industry to resolve our emerging technology challenges. ATARC also introduces innovative technology with academic research labs to the federal government and private industry. This is the Federal IT Newscast, where we get to hear from innovative professionals in the IT industry, as well as special guests. And today our special guest in honor of Women's History Month is Dr. Kurt Beyer. I'm gonna go ahead and hand this over to today's interviewer, that is Jennifer Kinney-Smith over at GitLab, and she will be introducing Dr. Kurt Beyer. Hello, hello, this is Jennifer Kenny-Smith. I'm the Area Sales Manager with GitLab, and today I have the distinct honor of speaking to Dr. Kurt Beyer, who is the author of Grace Hopper and Innovation of the Information Age. And together with ATARC, we've brought him in to share the journey, the history, the brilliance of the amazing Grace Hopper. Um, good afternoon, Kurt, how are you? Oh, good to be here. So Kurt, just want to tell you a little story about how this all kind of came to be. So I host a podcast for HARC for digital transformation. We focus on DevSecOps and I had Ian Anderson, who is the lead DevOps engineer focused on secure cloud architecture and automation. He's at Naval Surface Warfare Center, Dahlgren Division. And we finished his um, his podcast. First of all, he's he's a rock star. He's working on software factory and serving up this as a service model to the Navy. So awesome, inspiring. And I asked him at the end, Ian, is there anything you want to share? Any nuggets of wisdom or a favorite quote? And he said, well, yes, I'd like to reference the Rear Admiral Grace Hopper's famous words that she said, the most dangerous phrase in the language is we've always done it this way. And Kurt, you... I can't even believe I'm admitting this to you, but I was like, that's brilliant. I don't know who Grace Hopper is. I didn't know. I've actually never heard of her. And you're not the only one. Yeah. So I share this with females in the IT space or females anywhere that are looking to be inspired about how to successfully build your own career. And she also reinvents herself. And we'll get into all the things and amazing steps of her journey. But I ended up pulling up uh, the Google and started looking into her and learning a little bit about what she did. And I was like, wow, she's, she's pretty cool. Didn't read the book yet. And Helen, my marketing rock star guru calls me and says, Hey, for women's history month, I want to do something really great. Would you be interested in doing an interview with Dr. Byer in on his book and dedicate that to women's history month for with Grace Hopper? It's like, oh my gosh, I just had this call with Ian. So you ever hear the quote, and you're a professor, so you probably heard this, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. <laughs> that so, is a great quote. Behold, I am the student. You are my teacher. Um, I loved your book. I loved your approach to really her autobiography and the impact that she made and some of the struggles along the way. And we're going to get into all of that today. So I'm so grateful for your time. And thank you for ATARC and GitLab and Helen for helping us organize this. Um, so Kurt, tell me a little bit about your history. How did you first come to meet Grace Hopper? Well, the way I met her was actually connected to Helen as well. Helen was one of my sister's best friends. And when my sister graduated from William and Mary uh, in the early 80s, um, at her commencement, there was a, a woman sitting in what looked like a naval uniform uh, at the end of the row. Um, and she was knitting 
while the president of the university was introducing her. She sat there knitting and then she stood up and she had one of the most powerful voices I'd ever seen. And I'm 13 years old at the time. And I couldn't believe that she was talking about this amazing digital future that we would all be a part of one day because my grandmother, who was about the same age at the time, usually talked about how great things were back in the day, back in the past. So it just really shocked me um, to have that early experience. And then I ended up attending Annapolis United States Naval Academy. And that summer in 1986, once again, this old admiral stands in front of us and she says that we're gonna issue all of you your own computers. You're gonna connect it to ethernet and you're gonna use something called the internet. And this is 1986. So as a, a student now, I got to be exposed to technologies that the rest of society really didn't know about until the dot-com boom of the late nineties. And so personally, I'm indebted to Hopper as much as I am indebted to other mentors I've had in my life, because without her, I don't think I would have started my own journey um, in technology, which has led me to University of California, Berkeley and Silicon Valley. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I love the thought of her speaking and evangelizing as the teacher, um, as a guru and the things that she learned and developed. Um, I think that she's known and credit and credited to being that teacher and inspiring, right? So I love that you dedicate that career and inspiration to her. Um, why is it, do you think today that so many people don't know of her when she essentially paved the pathway for the likes of Bill Gates, Steve Jobs? Why don't we hear about her? I think there's a few reasons. One, I think the, the biggest issue is that she never became a billionaire. So she's not held in the same esteem as say a Bill Gates or a Steve Jobs or a Jeff Bezos. Um, she created the software industry. She created the technologies that underpin programming, yet she never personally monetized those things. So um, we do have a, a, a fascination, right, with uh, wealthy technologists. So she was a technologist, but not necessarily a wealthy one. I think the second thing was um, she had to sacrifice a lot to have her career. And one of the things she sacrificed was she never had a family. So I don't think she had children who eventually become um, um, kind of the keepers of her greatness, right? We see that with Edison's children's or Watts children's where the, the extended family are in fact part of making sure that, you know, the, the, uh, the leader of their family gets recognition where she never had that. So in a sense, that was my role. Um, I felt that I had to be the one that writes the book and lectures and, and speaks about um, how important she was to the, the fourth industrial revolution and everything we know uh, around us in terms of our technical society. Yeah, I, I mean, she, it, the folks you mentioned 
the success, monetary success, almost celebrity success, right? There's celebrities where she very much should have been not uh, not by being in, in movies or TV, but because of her accolades and her success. Um, so for the folks that are listening that don't know who she is and aren't, probably aren't even appreciating why we're gushing over her, we're going to take you on a journey together and give you the background, the history, the journey that she took, and the highs and lows of her career. Um, so Kurt, let's just jump right in. Let, can we talk a little bit about the history of her upbringing um, and what brought her to her career? Um, she is a PhD and professor at Vassar when I want to start the story and then just want to add to that she, I understand she was quirky and um, was always trying to figure out how things worked and would take apart household appliances and clocks and see if she could put them back together. Um, just celebrating that um, innovation. She was thirsty and wanting to understand how things worked. Well, she grew up when there was this window of opportunity for women in the United States. Um, after World War II, during the 1920s, um, women were given the vote. Women um, were able to have um, academic opportunities that they never had prior to that. And I have to say, Hopper took full advantage of those things, right? So not only uh, did she get her undergraduate degree, but she's one of the very first women to get a PhD in mathematics from Yale University. And remember, Yale University does not allow women undergrads until 1968. So this is um, a pretty amazing time for women in general, but Hopper in particular took advantage of it. Um, she then becomes a professor at Vassar, uh, professor of mathematics. And I think you mentioned quirkiness. Where it really came out at Vassar was she was so curious about um, topics outside of mathematics that um, she had this pattern where every semester, even though she had a full teaching load, she would audit one or two classes, anything from uh, art history to uh, geology. And then she would try to figure out how she could work what she learned from those other disciplines back into her mathematics classes. So I, I, I mentioned this because it actually becomes very important in her own philosophy of how the digital age should should um, evolve at a later stage. Where do you think this insatiable thirst of knowledge was derived from? Did she learn this from her parents or what was the driving force behind that, do you think? Yeah, both her parents were very supportive of her education. Uh, her father was a senior executive in an insurance company. Her mother, um, was also um, a teacher. So I think it starts with the family. Um, her family also had a, a military tradition. So her uh, grandfather was an admiral. Her uncle was the commandant of Marine Corps. So I, I think she was surrounded by um, successful uh, people who had strong personalities and that definitely um, influenced her journey as well. That's super cool. Um, tell me a little bit about the state of women in the 20s. Like, I don't know if anyone listening has had their mind blown. I didn't know women had PhDs in the 20s. My mother, I don't know if she graduated high school, let's be honest. Um, so what was it like then? Was that the status that, that, that women were highly educated and going after these degrees and also working? I think we're under the illusion that 
um, the progress for women's rights is uh, linear and continuous in a up and white, uh, right trajectory. And in fact, it's actually more like a, a sine curve. It goes up and down over time. And the 20s and early 30s were a time of opportunity for women. For instance, we don't see women receiving that many um, graduate degrees in mathematics until the 1980s again. Um, so the, the 20s and early 30s were a time of opportunity. World War II was a time of opportunity, but then we had retrenchment in the 50s and 60s, um, some movement in the 70s and 80s, and then I would argue that we're in yet another uh, period of retrenchment in terms of women's opportunities. Um, okay. So I want to highlight during pandemic, I think a lot of people have had to take the time to decide or think of, are they happy in their careers? Are they happy in their state of life? Um, what would Grace's advice be to a woman today that may want to go back and get a new degree or start something new in their career? What would she say? Well, she was never too bothered by other people's opinions what she could or couldn't do. Um, and that is something that I think we could all benefit from. I think sometimes we rely on external factors to define what success is and what success would be for us personally. And Hopper um, had the ability to make that decision internally and then um, even function within relatively hostile environments um, to still try to push forward her vision of not only a future for herself, but also for the greater whole. And that was a real rare talent she had, which I think all of us could learn from. Yes, I agree. Okay, so she's in her career of teaching. She is a professor, she's married at this yes. time. And tell us a little bit about the moment she decides to leave her career, leave her husband and enlist in the Navy. I think there's a date to this moment. I think it's December 7th, 1941. Okay. Uh, that, that's Pearl Harbor. And why I um, put it on a, the specific date is from my own experiences and shared experiences with the listeners, right? Think about how you felt um, the day of 9-11, or think how you felt uh, during this COVID crisis. You know, there are certain moments in our lives where um, nothing is the same anymore, right? That event changes everything for the entire community going forward. And that's what December 7th was for Hopper and for most everyone else in the United States. So by December 8th, we're now at war with Germany and Japan. Uh, the government's going on a war footing. So you have massive amounts of resources flowing into new directions. And the question that Hopper asked herself, like so many people is, what can I do for the war effort? Is the life I'm leading right now the life I want? And so she starts um, 
trying anything she can to join the war effort. And she wants to be an officer, just like her grandfather was. And the problem was um, they hadn't set up the WAVES program yet at this time. Uh, so she had to wait until 1942 to actually be accepted uh, into the, the US Navy. And I heard that was a struggle. That was a battle, right? She was 34, I believe. She weighed 100 pounds, so she was underweight. And um, what did she do to convince the Navy to bring her in? Well, in hopper fashion, she keeps on showing up and trying to uh, to get in. And and eventually, she starts, um, which which is another great strength of Hopper. You know, Hopper realized that uh, genius alone does not change the world. You need to um, build teams. You need to identify stakeholders um, and champions. And so she was very good at building a coalition of people, starting with um, her professor from Yale, who is now working in crypto uh, for the war effort, to make them realize that, hey, because this is a war of science, you do need someone like me. You do need a PhD in mathematics uh, to become an officer. Uh, so it's, it's Hopper's great talent of aligning uh, supporters to get her way, <laughs> if, yeah. to put it that simply. Yeah, she's her own best advocate, right? Yeah. She literally wrote her next new job. Yeah. And then went and got it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about she moves into her new role as a midshipman. Um, she leaves being uh, at home um, in the comfort of a family and a college professor career. Uh, I heard that she, I think this was her own words that it was easier being a professor or it's it, the new ship being in midshipman's realm was easier than being at home taking care of the family and being the professor. Yeah. So she, oh. Officer training was easier for her. Boot camp was easier for her yeah. than her normal life. Right. I love it. Like, bring it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So she's there. Tell me about this rapid transition of her new assignment. Well, she thought she was actually going to work in crypto as well. So she was a little surprised when she ended up at this um, top secret project going on at Harvard. So one of the efforts during the war was, how do we speed up ca calculating, right? So a, a computer in 1941 was a person using a handheld calculator, probably produced by IBM. And they would have these rooms of 100 human computers and they would break up problems and solve them by hand and reconstruct them again. It was a very slow and tedious process. So, Part of, of um, the research money that was being allocated to different universities went to how do we speed up this calculating process? So the two most famous projects in the United States were the ENIAC, which was a proto-computer project at University of Pennsylvania, and the Mark I, which was the computer project at Harvard. So she was assigned to the Harvard Mark I. Awesome. So how... That, how was that transition for her? Um, I understand she was going to be the only female. Um, I read or heard that she was scared. Uh, I just want to point out that even though she seems to be full of grit and hard as nails, 
it's something new. Well, she wasn't prepared for it. It's okay to be scared and be vulnerable. Um, so how was that transition for her? Well, I think she was shocked when she first got there, especially because she, um, they were running the Harvard Mark One project like uh, a naval ship. And she was the second highest ranking officer assigned there. Uh, Howard Aiken, who was in charge of the project, was the, the commanding officer of the Mark One. So from the get-go, um, because they were following the rules of the military, she was number two in charge. Um, but she also had a, a boss who um, thought that ha having, excuse me, let's start again with that. She also had a situation where she had a boss who wasn't very accepting that his number two in charge would be a woman, um, a woman not experienced in calculating machines, even though she had a PhD in mathematics. But let's be honest, he wasn't either, right? No one was. <laughs> this is a, a machine that uh, there's only one of them, one of a kind. And so I think she was intimidated in part by the fact that making that machine operate would fall on her. Yeah. yeah, so tell us a little bit more about Aiken and how we ran the laboratory and the culture. I heard that it was pretty much 24 seven shop, that, that kind of SLA, which I think we just thought came to fruition in 2008. <laughs> like, <laughs> tell me about his leadership. Well, Aiken was a, was a character. Um, he definitely led through um, uh, strength and fear. Um, he was a taskmaster. Uh, he pushed everyone very hard. He made them work in three different shifts, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, military protocol. And uh, Hopper loved it. So that was the amazing thing about Hopper is she wasn't intimidated by it. She actually uh, bought right into the program. And once again, her, her talent, I think, is the ability to uh, align herself and win people over that are even as ornery as a Howard Aiken. Good, good information to know and for us to learn to adapt to. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the Mark One. What was the purpose? Um, what were and so I understand it was to do predictions. This machine and who was needing data from it. Um, so as she moves into this new role, never working on computers before, um, had to learn about everything she could consume about it. What was the Mark One's mission? So the first computers, Yannick and Mark One, were like any other technology created up to that point in human history. And so this is a big break that we're about to talk about. And it separates the fourth industrial revolution from everything that comes before it. Every single technology created prior to the Mark One did a single task. So you created a technology to do a singular task. So a phone, a typewriter, a hammer, they all have a singular purpose. So did the Mark I. And it was built to produce ballistics tables. That's it. So when Hopper started being asked to make other types of mathematical calculations for the war effort, Instead of saying, no, listen, Mark One's for ballistic tables. We'll have to build a separate machine to make that kind of calculation. Instead, she said, okay, 
I need to figure out how to modify the Mach 1. And if I can modify it, then it'll do ballistics tables, but then it will make uh, calculations around how to construct uh, radar antennas. Um, we could do calculations to figure out um, where to put the center of gravity for new ships we're building. Whatever mathematical problem needed to be solved, she decided that there's a way to create a continuous modification process of the Mark I. And she actually did it with paper tape. So we didn't have the word programming yet. She called it coding. Um, they created paper tape, which was the code, but some of the, the um, other concepts that come into our programming lexicon is uh, they kept the paper, the physical paper in a broom closet and they called it the library. And then each paper tape was called a subroutine. So what they realized is once they got one of the paper tapes that said did code sign well, uh, all cleaned up, debugged, they started using that word also debugging, um, then they could put it in the code library as a subroutine and then stitch it together with other subroutines to create whatever next iteration of coded program they wanted to create. So essentially reconfiguring the computer, automated, automating that rather than it being one reconfiguration at a time to have it do new things. So, so creating this gap now between the hardware of the computer and a layer of, I can't use the word programming yet, but a layer of coding on top of it. And so that's the great innovation of the Harvard Mark I. Incredible. Um, she also wrote a book on the code for five, about 500 pages that I understand she had to have Aiken review on a daily basis. <laughs> Yeah, just one of the assignments Aiken gave her, right, was, hey, you're going to write the first computer book. You're going to write um, a 500-page book that explains how this machine works. And in that book is also explaining her early notions of coding. No small order, right? No. Okay, so let's dig into, just want to level up the conversation if you're not already impressed with what she's done. Tell us or share, if you can, about the critical role she played in ending the war. Well, one of the people that came to visit her was a man named John von Neumann, and uh, he was a mathematician working on another top secret project called the Manhattan Project. Now, he couldn't share with Aiken and Hopper why he wanted a certain problem solved, but he was trying to figure out how to cause a sphere to collapse upon itself and where to put the charges in order to do that at a certain rate. And it was a very difficult um, mathematical problem that you, you needed differential equations to solve. Remember, the Mark I is built for ballistic stables. Well, Hopper and her team take on the challenge. It takes them about three months but they solve this very difficult problem. And in fact, um, von Neumann also trying to have the ENIAC project in Philadelphia solve it, as well as these computer teams of humans, but they just couldn't do it quick enough. So Hopper and her team figure out, well, 
at the end of the war, they realized they had solved the implosion problem for the atomic bomb, the same atomic bomb that was dropped over Japan and the war ends six days later. Incredible. I heard you speak about that. I just had goosebumps, like incredible. Sometimes we don't know the work that we show up to do on the daily basis yeah. will have what kind of impact. Okay, so the war ends. Where's Grace now? Uh, this is literally where it all goes to hell for her. Um, so one of the initiatives after the war was a return to normalcy, right? This is the same language we keep on hearing, right? Right now yeah. is, hey, what is the return to normalcy going to be after COVID? And that return to no normalcy was, let's end the WAVES program. So women will no longer be active officers in the military. Um, let's end the Harvard Mark I project or turn it at least into um, a project that's not for the war effort, but is just part of the university. Well, Howard Aiken gets offered a professorship but Hopper can't because women aren't allowed to be professors at Harvard at the time. So she finds herself, she's no longer an officer and she can't be a professor at Harvard, yet she's one of the world's experts in this new field of computing. Um, it's a very difficult time for her. She um, was already a pretty heavy drinker. That gets a lot worse. Um, she tries to commit suicide twice. So things cycle out of control for her. And I found a letter from one of the people that used to work for at Harvard and um, they have an intervention with her. And in that letter, they, they talk about how she is the most important person of this new cadre of pioneers. Um, she, she can only function at that time maybe once or twice every week because she's recovering so much from her heavy drinking. But they thought, imagine a world where she was able to overcome her drinking and be able to put her full efforts behind building out this new technology. Um, and I think her saving grace is um, when she does team up with the two professors who are building the ENIAC project in Philadelphia and they uh, create the first computer startup company, the ENIAC Corporation, uh, which goes on to build uh, the most dominant computer of the 1950s, the UNIVAC. So hold that thought. Let's just go back for a second. She, I think the tailspin, the downward spiral, I think either all of us or we know somebody who's been through that, either a career transition or a divorce or a loss of a family member, a child or something that causes this complete disruption of what normal is and what you associate your life to be. Um, I understand she also partake in a lot of social drinking to fit in with the boys yeah. in the guys club. So what she was drinking and smoking to be in the realm of having conversations to be a part of the team turned into something that she relied on. Um, there's zero judgment of that. It happens. And I think that intervention is obviously the falling grace for her and for us, for history, so that she's able to come back and recover. Um, any ideas of how she really navigated from that dark place back to, I know we're going to get into her next new role, but was yeah. there any, any I, friends or family that helped her through that? 
You know, I think if I wrote the book now, um, my own COVID experiences would weigh into that section of the book. I, I, Jennifer, I think you're so right to point those things out because so many of us um, and so many of our family members are and and um, and work colleagues are going through these challenges right now, right, on different levels, and so. I think I'm much more empathetic uh, today. Um, so if I rewrote that chapter, I would probably research more about what, who and what were the people and organizations that helped her overcome that situation. Yeah, um, yeah just a shout out anyone out there that needs help, get help, ask for a friend, no one should suffer alone. And it's just a great testimony that since she did get help, she's moved into the next phase of our topic. Um, so at this point, she's done more in her career and life than me, first of all, and most people that I know. Um, but yet I keep hearing one of her, her most quoted words, we are just getting started. And she was truly just getting started. There was no chance this woman was stopping. Um, so Kurt, I know you're super passionate about this part. Let's talk about the fourth industrial revolution. Yeah, so. Yeah, go for it. And, and it ties in so well with when we do go through difficult times, maybe the, the best is yet to come. And in, in Hopper's case, she had multiple acts that needed to come, which were so critical for the creation of what we call the fourth industrial revolution. So by the late forties at ENIAC, uh, she's now the head of, uh, of programming. So they, they do have this term now. And what they realize is that if, if they want these new machines to really become influential from a commercial point of view, because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to build a commercial machine. They needed that machine to uh, be able to change and become whatever each company or uh, government bureau needed it to become. And that had to be done through programming. The issue is that the Mark I was all done manually. Right, so there's no way to allow this this technology to expand by entering machine code in manually. So she invents the compiler, which I think is the core invention of the fourth industrial revolution. It's the equivalent of the steam engine in my mind. Okay, and so hang on before we go there. Tell me a little bit about her role in late 40s and her whole team's female is that is that accurate her whole team is uh female because she she took uh some of the operators from the ENIAC project also which happened to be uh six female operators so yeah so this first programming team and it's so different from our biases about what a programmer is right mm -hmm. today's age the entire team were women and you had shared thoughts on a podcast I listened to about your view, men, uh, the IT industry in the 80s. And even today, 
I mean, I think it's 13% women in IT today. Um, but as we journey through time, in the 50s, there's females developing software, essentially. Not only developing the software, de developing the high-end programs that allow us to write code, right? Yeah. All right. So let's dive into the her I, her revolutionary idea regarding the computer language being intuitive. I know you just are, you already shared what the the the, yep. the the compiler is, but break that down. Like, tell, bring us to that moment in time and how that all evolved. So the compiler is the translator between the human and the machine. And once once you have the compiler, um, then you can layer on top of it what Hopper at the time called pseudocode. Today we call it source code. And you can develop the source code to allow us to use language that we're, we're happy with, that we, we understand. It can be in English, it can be in French, it can be in mathematical signs. Whatever we want the source code to be, it can be. Yeah. And so, so go ahead. I was just gonna say, if those who don't know coding, because I know this podcast is wide for all things digital transformation, but the confusing symbols and binary code that most people couldn't interpret or understand. This is what we're talking about, what she evolved. Yeah. And by being able to write it in our languages, it democratizes the process, then, right? You don't have to be a PhD in mathematics to start programming or interacting with these machines. Um, so sh she thought this was a, cr a critical development in order for the use of computers to expand, to make programming languages that were easy to use. And this would then allow the machine to turn into what you needed it to be. And, th and this is the critical part of the fourth industrial revolution, right? Think about what I have in my hand. It's a single piece of hardware, but it can be a phone, a calendar, email, a video game. That's all done by software. And Hopper's the one that saw it this way, right? So she broke and believe it, there were people fighting her. There were people that were like, no, we build a machine for a single purpose. That's the way we've always done it. And it goes back to, I think, her curiosity with taking other courses at Vassar, right? That why can't the machine be different from what you imagine it to be initially? Let the software do that. Let the programming take care of that. So during the 1950s, that's her mission, is to continue to push her vision of a computer future that's based on software. Okay, so companies start to adopt her compiler system. Can we talk about the challenges of incompatible languages and how mm. Grace continued to expand on her compiler? So she builds her compiler and her first languages, Flowmatic and Mathematic, for um, her machines, the Univac. Uh, but there's other companies now starting to get into the computer business, you know, IBM, Raytheon. And so they adopt her notion of language, but they start creating their own languages and their own compilers. 
And so by the late 50s, we, we pretty much have a, a, a Tower of Babel problem where um, you spend all this time writing out your program, but it would only work on a single piece of hardware, a single brand of hardware. So that's caused her to use her influence again in different areas and pull together government, Department of Defense, uh, the commercial leaders at the time into a two-day conference called CODASIL. And at this conference, they would devise a universal language, a business language that would work on every single hardware. So you can write it once in source code and if you're running an IBM machine or if you're running a UNIVAC, both work. And that language was renamed COBOL. So let's, let's think through this. She already comes up with the invention. She also offers to help other companies with their own you know, analysis and expansion. Um, she, I understand, went to the DOD and suggested to create this conference to bring in the brainiacs, the thought leaders from industry, from the government. It's so similar to what we do with ATARC on a daily and weekly occurrence where we pull together not just to network for the sake of networking, but to co-collaborate. Yep. And this idea of she, she brought, she brought it so far and then wanted to bring more innovation. So we have to bring in more people to help us expand this idea of we can figure out things by ourselves. That's, that's so foolish. Like let's collaborate. Let's really level up the conversation. And oh yes, the invention of COBOL. Uh, so this is in the sixties. Is this right? So this is 1959. Okay. All right. So universally then adopted in the sixties, um, let's talk about some of the household names of companies that started to adopt and using it to their benefit to grow their businesses. Sure. So you had a, a, a young uh, store owner who realized he could manage inventory better using COBOL. Um, that's Sam Walton in Walmart. Um, you have a um, Harvard uh, student who's doing an internship at a small company in uh, New York City called Morgan Stanley, and he knows COBOL, and he suggests that Morgan Stanley start um, using COBOL to do financial analysis for its uh, large customers. Remember, Morgan Stanley is a uh, third-tier player with about 50 employees and revenues of about $5 million at this time. Um, you have the airline industry realizing that maybe there's a better way to organize commercial flights than by hand. Um, so they start using uh, COBOL to create uh, the back end to allow for commercial airline businesses to thrive in the 60s and 70s. Uh, ADR starts doing payroll uh, with COBOL. And we can go on and on and on and on. Pretty much we see the explosion of different business use cases based on the computer and COBOL. And by the time we get to 1999, 70% of all active code in the world is COBOL, which is a problem called Y2K. Oh. Yes. 
All right. So, so this is about 40 years worth of her career. We're in the yes. 60s now. Let, let me guess. She's also named, I, and I don't know if she would have liked this. I don't know if I would have liked it. The Grandma of Kobol. Was she a fan of that yep. or no? Yeah. She was also named uh, the Computing Industry's Man of the Year in 1968, which I find pretty ironic that she's the Man of the Year. That is ironic. Um, well, cheers to that. Okay, so 40 years of this incredible career. Grandma Cobol, is she ready to retire? Oh, of course not. Not even close. What comes <laughs> next? Tell me what's next. Well, she's, I think she's still angry that she got kicked out of the, uh, the Navy and that she, she couldn't be a Naval officer. So um, in the late 60s, uh, women were allowed to, to serve as officers. And uh, so she decided that she was going to join up. Um, and so she is in her 60s. And she becomes uh, one of the oldest active duty officers in the Navy. Um, and once again, uh, it's a critical time for the Navy Department of Defense, but also for the future of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Um, most people don't realize that the seeds of the three most important um, developments that influence our lives right now are back in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, the military has uh, a project called the Advanced Research Projects Agency. It's um, the military's ability to try to take moonshots around uh, different technologies. And so Hopper starts becoming very involved in um, pushing some of these moonshots forward within Department of Defense. Uh, one is the integrated circuit, one is ARPANET, Advanced Research Project Agency's network, which becomes MILNET, which becomes, of course, the internet. And the third is augmented reality and virtual reality. Uh, getting computers now not to just do mathematical equations, but to actually start producing images, graphic images. And so Hopper ends up spending the next 22 years of her career um, as a naval officer and rises to the rank of rear admiral and was very involved in all of these uh, initiatives in the military using the technology for now communication purposes and um, for affecting my life as we started <laughs> with this whole journey, right? Where she makes sure that the next generation of Naval officers has access to all these new, at the time, esoteric uh, computer technologies. It's absolutely incredible. I wanna pull on the idea of her being a, still a female in this whole leadership realm moving throughout um, the military, throughout IT, back in the military. Um, in your book, page 324, what did you learn about Grace's ability to transcend organizational gender bias to elevate her career? One thing that I, I try to tell my own students at University of California, Berkeley. So I teach entre the entrepreneurship program at University of California, Berkeley. And I have to get them over this myth of the genius, 
right? For some reason, I think it's because we love uh, the individual myth of the genius, the superhuman that can save us all. Um, that's not how innovation works. That's not how startups work. Um, that's not how larger innovative organizations work. And Hopper knew that. And so Hopper's genius was not her own abilities. It was the fact that she was very good at organizing others around a singular vision. She was a salesperson. So yes, yeah, she was a technologist, but she was a salesperson as well. And so throughout her career over and over again, I see her put in what others would consider a hostile environment and you give her a few months or a few years and she would turn that hostile environment around and get them working on a vision together collaboratively. And this happened um, at Harvard. This happened during the 1950s. I have this wonderful picture from the 1950s, her team. And I, I put it next to what we call the PayPal mafia in, uh, in Silicon Valley uh, from the 2000s. The PayPal mafia picture is about 20 white men. Hopper's team picture from the mid fifties um, has um, an African-American, uh, an Asian woman, an Indian man, herself and lots of other women. And of course, some white men as well, but it was just so shocking when I found that picture in the archives, right? So we, we have such a bias about the 1950s versus say the current day, when in fact, Hopper was able to build diverse teams at a time where we thought diverse teams weren't being built. It's so relevant today, as we talk about that, um, wh what do you think happens when companies or teams don't lean in to have diversity? How does, how does innovation suffer? Well, the reason I think Hopper was building those teams is she was looking for proactive creativity. And so sometimes when we don't pick for diversity, we fall in the trap of just picking people that think like ourselves and look like ourselves when in fact we're undermining the entire innovative experiment by doing that. She wanted to innovate. She wanted to change the world. So she didn't care who you were as long as you could help that vision where even if we don't have an understanding of our own active biases, those biases are there. And, and so I think we all have to train ourselves and wake ourselves up to the fact that all of us make some of those unconscious decisions that probably undermine what we're actually trying to achieve sometimes. So there's a lot to learn from, from Hopper's way of building teams as well. So well said and noted as I build my team and support my team, always looking for that. Uh, so I understand with all these accolades, she, I understand she's super humble. Was there parts of her career in this journey that she's proud of that you understood her to celebrate? 
I think she is, she's proud of whenever she proved everyone else wrong. <laughs> All the time, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> All the time. If, if you look at her later speeches and her later interviews, that's definitely a theme that comes out. Like she, she likes a story of like everyone was against her team and her and yet, you know, we proved them wrong. We showed them that you could actually do it. Um, so that's definitely a driving force of hers is uh, trying to a a accomplish things that other people didn't even think were possible. That's great. Any last thoughts? Those are a lot of questions. You've covered everything so poetically. Um, your admiration of her and your passion transcends through this podcast. So thank you so much for your for sharing. I know that it's impacting me currently, and I'm sure everybody that's listening. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share? And especially in the honor and recognition, it is Women's History Month. Yeah, I th I think I I want all of us to think of Hopper and her model as we reconfigure our world post COVID. So this is, this is a pretty big moment for all of us, right? And for our communities as a whole. I, I think COVID is an event like World War I, World War II, 9-11. And there is no return to normal on the other side. This is a break and we have to kind of rebuild our organizations and our societies after this break. And so we have to think about what will that look like? I have to tell you what I don't want it to look like. I don't want it to look like what was happening in the 2000s. And what I mean by that is Hopper's teams were 50, 60% women. When I was in college, 40% of computer scientists were women. That number went down to 13% by 2013. At the same time, we are been witnessing the amazing wealth generation and innovation of the fourth industrial revolution. Software is eating the world. Hopper's invention is eating the world, yet 50% of the population is not participating in its gains. So I would like to see that change going forward as we reorganize in the name of Hopper. And for women that want to start investing in that career path or education as a professor, what are, what are some wise words you can share? What is some inspiration? I think it starts when you're young. I think uh, it helps when the community supports those efforts. Uh, one wonderful uh, way to honor Hopper is to support uh, the Grace Hopper celebration. Uh, this started out as a conference for women in computing. Uh, the first one I went to maybe had about 800 people there. Um, last year it was virtual, but the year before, I think there were 35,000 attendees. Um, it's a great place for companies to recruit. Um, and so I just want to make a pitch for uh, the Grace Hopper celebration as well. Yes, I love that. Thank you for that plug. I also want to plug your book. If you all are watching, this is his book, Grace Hopper and the Innovation 
of the information age. Um, you'll hear when we wrap this, ATARC and GitLab will be giving away these books um, when you register. Um, so we want to have the book in everybody's hands. Um, parents, teach your children, teach your daughters to go lean in to not be scared or discouraged. We, as a future, need up and coming rising rock star girls and women and men too. I mean, I don't mean to make this just about women, but could we all be a little bit more like Grace? Come on. Oh, with that, I'm going to sign off. Kurt, Dr. Beyer, it was such an honor to be with you, to spend time with you. I just, um, I was excited about this all week. You're the highlight of my week for sure. And oh. I also want to send a shout out to our marketing team and our sales organization at GitLab and our amazingly good friends over at ATARC. Any last words, Kurt? I think you said it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Happy Women's History Month.